You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Okay, we're going to get started and uh, resume our study in the book of Philippians. As you know, uh, Cornell is teaching through Corinthians and we have been uh, exchanging Sundays every few weeks and I've been going through the book of Philippians. So if you would turn there to chapter 1 in the book of Philippians, we'll resume our study. Before we do so, let's uh, open in prayer. Father, we just thank you this morning during this Sunday school time that you would honor us with your presence, Father, and we praise you and thank you for your word. And Father, we just pray that uh, during this time of study of your word and the time of worship and preaching of your word that you would most of all, be glorified and honored in all that we do. We ask that you would guide us now by the power of your Holy Spirit and that we'd be able to have not only understanding, but that we would be able to appropriate truths that you bring to us through your word. We just ask that you guide us now and we just praise you and thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, we left off last week in a a key verse, and that was in verse 6, but I'm going to bring us into context and we'll read from verse 3 down through verse 8 in chapter 1. Paul says this, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you with all joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, You all are partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness how greatly I long for you with all affection of Jesus Christ. What a prayer Paul is offering for these saints in Philippi. He, during the time of this writing, is imprisoned in Rome. And they have sent Epaphroditus over to minister to some of Paul's needs, to bring him sustenance and some of his items that he requested, and also to minister to him in whatever way they could. Paul, in his expression of his love for these saints, has brought this wonderful truth about God's sovereign work in the salvation of believers from beginning to end, from 
face to face. Paul brings this clear picture in verse 6. And yet, this is woven through the rest of these verses. So, if I refer back to this frequently, it's because it ties in contextually. And it's an essential portion of this text. He begins with, in verse 7, Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart. What does he mean by this? The apostles given the believers this truth about God beginning the work. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. God has chosen us as His children before the foundation of the world. He's also effectually called us. That is, when God calls us, all those who He calls come to Him. He also justifies us. And then we begin the process of sanctification. That is, we're being set apart for God. This work that God does in us brings us more into the likeness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And finally, we reach the place of glorification. And that is what is meant by the day of Christ Jesus. And I explained a little bit of the contrast between that and the day of the Lord last week, or last time I we studied this portion of the text. But this is referring to the glorification of the believers in Jesus Christ. The ultimate completion of our redemption. When God starts that redemptive work, we are still here on earth in these fleshly bodies, earthly bodies, and we're still capable of sin. Though sin is no longer ruler over this, Paul tells, tells us that in the book to the Romans. As we look at this truth, Paul goes on to say this, just as it is right for me to think this of you all. As he says this, he uses this word right, which is dikaios in the original. It denotes more of an appropriateness and expresses a moral and spiritual correctness. In other words, it's more than just uh, well, this is something I should do. This is actually talking about the moral and spiritual correctness of what he's doing. It, it comes from the work that God has done in Paul and through Paul to present the gospel to these people in Philippi and then watch God's work in their hearts. He's addressing this to the believers. Those that are not professors, these are the possessors of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we know, they celebrated together. They spent in fellowship together. They also proclaimed the furtherance of the gospel. They continued to bring forth the gospel to the people of Philippi. <clears throat> the <clears throat> understanding of Paul saying, for it is right for me to feel this way, is also translated in the New King James, to think in this way. It uh, has the basic meaning of a disposition or an attitude. 
and this this was a reflection of what Paul was saying was, I'm thinking of you all. I have this, you're on my heart. Whoever paused to think about the the essence of our oneness in Christ, uh, when Paul was correcting some of the error of the and giving instruction about the gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, he says that we're all baptized into one body. We're all baptized into one spirit. We are members of one another. Though we are many, we are members of one body. So that connection that we have with one another is what Paul was expressing to these believers. He understood the oneness that they had in Christ Jesus. He understood what God had done in them. Now remember, this was in the Roman Empire. This city was a mirror of Rome. The city which was cultured, they were proud of their uh, language, they were proud to be <clears throat> Roman citizens, they had the benefits of that in this city, <clears throat> some of which they had, uh, they did not have to pay certain taxes, though they were taxed heavily, and yet they were a proud people, proud to be Romans, proud to be Roman citizens. There are very few uh, Jews in this community, it was made up mostly of Romans and the Greeks. And yet, the gospel had been brought there. And people began to be transformed. Paul wanted to come to them, and he wanted to go to them, but he couldn't at the present time. He was incarcerated. So they sent someone to him, Epaphroditus. And as we find out later, Epaphroditus either became sick during his travels, or when he reached Rome, and Paul uh, expressed great concern for that in the next chapter. But here, he wants to express to them how he's thinking about them, and they are on his mind or on his heart. Now, when Scripture speaks about the heart, that is talking about the inner thinking, the, the mind and the heart are synonymous in Scripture. Old and New Testament. So it's our thinking process and the very essence of what emanates from our mind. So when those are used, heart and mind, they can be used synonymously. Paul says, I did not, <clears throat> when he went to Corinth, or when he wrote to Corinth, he said this, I do not speak to condemn you, for I have said before, that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. That's Second Corinthians chapter 7, verse 3. Paul expressed even to the Corinthians, who many had greatly disappointed him, his love and affection. But there was a special affection for these Philippian believers. Paul loved all believers. So it wasn't like he didn't love the other members of the body of Christ in the various cities that he ministered in. But he had a special love, and it brings forth the essence of that affection that he has in this letter. This is a unique letter. <clears throat> it wasn't hard for Paul to love these Philippian believers in his heart. They meant 
a great deal, and he thought about them in other ways. He reminded them that both in his imprisonment and his defense and confirmation of the gospel, that they were all partakers of grace with him. Now, when he says in the defense of the gospel and confirmation of the gospel, the word defense there comes from the word apologia, in which we get our English word apologetic. So, Paul was defending the gospel against any error. And he'll point out in chapter 3 that there was some error that uh, they were trying to perpetrate on the believers, and that was the Judaizers. And he was to point that out in chapter 3. But primarily, this was more of a didactic letter for this. It was more doct- not as much a doctrinal treatise as he does in Galatians or Romans or the other epistles. This was more of a personal letter, which sets it apart from some of his other epistles. <clears throat> so the word defense apologia, he says that they were all partakers of that grace and defense and confirmation of the gospel. Confirmation of the gospel was that they were proclaiming it. They were bringing forth with truth and essence of what the true gospel is. You know, we have much error today and heresy and that has been from the first century. There was always attacks against the doctrine of Jesus Christ and the doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There was always some form of aberrance that they tried to bring to seduce people to move away from the truths of the gospel. And Paul was careful to attack these heretical doctrines that were creeping into the church at that time. So he wanted to not only to defend, but he also wanted to confirm the gospel. Paul's affirmation of this uh, Philippian church was sacrificial and was selfless. They had stood by him and encouraged him. They helped him in all they could. They were givers to Paul. They supported his ministry as he went throughout his missionary journeys. They were some that gave sacrificially to Paul and sometimes when no others did. They weren't a wealthy people, although Lydia, one of the first converts, she was a wealthy merchant. But for the most part, they didn't have a great deal of means. So when they gave, it was sacrificial. They loved Paul. They knew what God was doing through him and in him. And they gave sacrificially to that mission. He wanted them to know without a doubt how much he genuinely loved them with an affection which comes from the word, I won't try to slaughter the Greek, but it literally means internal organs. In the uh, King James, it says bowels. It substitutes for this word with affection. And yet, what this describes is a selfless, compassionate love. 
Paul had this love of depth of love for these people that was an agape love. One by which they knew that he loved them greatly. <clears throat> the Lord said this in the Gospel to John, in which Jim espoused. <clears throat> he says, by this you will know that you, they, they will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. That was in John 13.35. That love was not the phileo love that Peter first expressed for, for God. But this was an agape love. A love that God gives us. The love that only God can give us. That is expressed by Paul to the Philippian saints. That's the type of love that we have and should have for one another. Remember, as we consider that we are members one of another, this love should be exercised with all believers. <clears throat> we have uh, an understanding that when Paul said, you all, he was talking to all the believers in Philippi, not just some special believers that he had met on occasion when he ministered there. But he was speaking to the entire church in Philippi. All of them. He had heard good reports about them. He was always commending them and encouraging them. And they, as well, encouraged the Apostle Paul. So it was a mutual love that they shared one towards another. The Bible shows us that the work of salvation is a triune work. First of all, the Father initiates this work. Then, Jesus Christ provides the way of salvation. And then, God the Holy Spirit works that in the souls of those that He's called. So this triune work of the Godhead in salvation is the work that God does completely in us. We have been redeemed, and that redemption will be complete when He takes us in glorification. So what happens to a Christian is not just that we've been reformed and we're going to live a better life, as some of the uh, faith movement claims. We're going to have better things, a better life. No, it's a transformation a renewing, a regeneration. We are a new creation. Old things pass away. And behold, Paul says, all things become new. We're a new creation. We're not just reformed and behave a little better. We're transformed. God has transformed us and began the work of sanctification, of changing us from the people we were fallen sinners into Christ's likeness. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, The first thing that God does is to awaken us to a state and condition. God the Holy Spirit acts on us and makes us see that we are guilty before God. We are lost. He makes us see that we are without life and we do not truly know God. He makes us see that even our interest in God is something sinful. 
because we regard God as a term and do not hesitate to criticize him. The Holy Spirit awakens us to our need. There is a quickening that comes to us. We begin to see ourselves as we really are. And in truth, turns us to a state of repentance and sorrow for our sin. Then, the Holy Spirit creates within us a desire for God. A desire for a different order in our life. A better life. We try to find God, but we discover we cannot. Then the Holy Spirit does the blessed work of revealing Christ to us in the perfection of His work. Suddenly, He opens our eyes to see the real meaning of Christ and the cross. We begin to read our Bibles, to attend church, and to want to fellowship with other believers. We are a new creature made in His image. That is the good work that God begins in us and continues in us. He perfects us through His Word and through His Spirit. God is working in us and everything that happens to us is a part of that process. We may lose a job or money or face illness or suffering, but someday we will see this as all a part of the process of God continuing on with the work that He has begun. End quote. I thought that was a great definition what a true Christian is. There's a lot of... Uh, misunderstandings by many in the world trying to use Christianity for their own gain. And yet, when we see the essence of what a true Christian is, we can know that that is truly a work of God that even gives us that understanding. And He reveals it through His Word by the Holy Spirit. We're going to enter into a magnificent culmination of our salvation when God brings us into glorification. We're not going to really miss anything. The end is the purpose of God's good work. What He began, He is going to complete. We have to understand that God's work in us is the entirety of His Godhead, and yet we also have to understand it's the work of His attributes. When we understand God's sovereignty and trust in His character and His attributes of truly who God is, we can't worry about our condition or the troubles that we may face. These are for God's perfect providential purpose. He knows exactly everything that is going to transpire and He's absolutely in control of all things. We can trust in that sovereignty. And that's the God that Paul understood that these Philippian believers had come to. They believed and trusted in this God. Peter says it like this. He is an incorruptible and undefiled and Christ in us, which is incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away. The work of Christ is doing in us a certainty, we can have certainty and be confident that He is going to complete it. This guarantee is nothing less 
than that of the very character of the God who promised it. So this is not something that Paul penned without the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This was under the inspiration and influence of God's Holy Spirit. So Paul was not trusting in the Christianity of the people. He was trusting in God's work in them. There's a great difference. He could look at these people and know that it was God working in them. It wasn't them. It wasn't their good behavior. It was only by God's grace and through the power of God's Spirit that they were what they were. And Paul understood this. His promises are sure. Speaking of God, he does not change. He purposes to do something and he continues through it. We can thank God of that hope and promise of his glory because it's almost as it's always happened. God has promised it and is surely to come to pass. He's going to complete it. So let's look at some of the understanding of what Paul's word here can mean to us. We uh, live in a society that in many ways mirrors that of Rome during the time of Paul's writing. There are some great parallels. Many uh, theologians have written some great parallels in their commentaries. Some of them was that Rome was a very immoral place. It was an immoral empire. There was sexual immorality, uh, promiscuity, homosexuality. Uh, divorce was rampant. Divorce was uh, so common that it wouldn't be uncommon for somebody to be married 20 times or more, some historians have revealed. So they had no moral compass at all. So imagine being in that society. Can we imagine that? We can't. We understand at least a little of what these Christians were experiencing. They were in the midst of a perverse generation. And yet they stood apart. They were separate. And Paul knew that and understood it. And he was expressing his love to them. He wanted them to be encouraged. And they also did when they sent Epaphroditus with the gift. They wanted to express their love back to Paul. And yet, Paul understood these believers were facing difficulties every day. Not just financially, but they were in a wicked culture. And yet, they were not afraid to stand for the gospel. They were going to be persecuted. Some of them later on would be martyred. Paul knew that they were standing on their faith alone because of Christ alone. And that's what he was giving them some great encouragement, and that's what he was expressing great thankfulness for them. So as we look at this, we can understand, no matter what our circumstances, Paul is lifting them up and above their circumstances. He is pointing them to the God that saved them. He repeats Jesus Christ's name, either Christ Jesus or Christ or Lord, Almost, I think, 17 times just in the first chapter alone. Either 13 or 17. And 
He wants them to come back to that. He wants them to understand that is their source of hope. That is their source of love. And that is their source of strength when they are going to live in this wicked time. As we think of this, how does that impact us today? How do we respond to those around us? Do we look at them and think, well, I'm glad I'm not one of those? Or do we recognize we live in a fallen world and we're surrounded by people who need to know and hear the gospel? We can go forth with boldness as these Philippian believers did and we can proclaim that whenever we have opportunity. And we can trust God to do His work through His Word. Sometimes uh, those in the contemporary church professing to be Christians can be manifest when they're uncommitted. And when times are good, they pick and choose what they want to hear or read or seek out teachers to tickle their ears. And when times are bad, they can be unreliable and abandon their beliefs altogether. These are the professors, the tares that are in some of local churches. And that goes for today in the contemporary church universally. There's true believers and there's those that are professors. And yet, we know that God is going to do a work in His children and will continue that work. <clears throat> Paul saw in these Philippians, <clears throat> the Philippians believers a genuineness, a consistency that he was thankful for. He knew that God was the author and also the finisher of our faith. Why would Paul be concerned for them to uh, be able to pray certain things for him as we continue this epistle. Uh, he, he expresses, For God is my witness how greatly I long for you with all the affection of Jesus Christ. And then he begins to pray in verse 9, which we're going to look at the next time. But why would Paul do this? I mean, he's just told him in verse 6 that God is the one that began to work in you. And he's going to be the one that completes it. Why would he even write for him? Write to them. Why would he pray? It's, uh, is there a reason for it? I mean, doesn't that just seem to be a paradox? I mean, if you, if you truly believe that God is the author and finisher of our faith, he starts in us a work and he's going to complete it. Well, we don't need to pray for somebody, do we? Or we don't need to Surely, if God's the one that's going to bring the gospel, He's going to save those who He wants to. Well, that, uh, I'm afraid, is, is a heresy that was even permeated in amongst the Calvinists, the hyper-Calvinists. That is, well, if God is the one that's going to save us and that is His work, then we don't need to worry about giving the gospel. We don't need to worry about bringing forth the truth. God's the one that's going to do it. If you're going to be saved, you'll be saved. If not, you're not the elect. That isn't what Paul saw. He saw that he wanted them to grow. He knew the temptations that they would face. He understood the temptations that we face daily. And yet, he had prayed for them. 
He wanted them to continue to grow in their faith. He understood that God was going to do this work. He's the one that sets us apart. He's the one that sanctifies us. And yet, Paul knew that we were called to pray and intercede for one another. So he's he's invoking now in verse 8, God's name. For God is my witness how greatly I long for you. Now that that's a powerful word there that he's using uh, when he says, God is my witness that I, how greatly I long for you. He wasn't uh, feigning any kind of affection for these saints. He was sincere. And he loved these saints so much that he could even invoke the, the name of God and say, God is my witness. He knows my love for you. He understands my deep affection for you. He spoke with a pure heart. Paul had a genuine and sincere love. What an example for us to truly have a sincere love for the brethren. Oh, we may get impatient sometimes, but we should never, ever lose our affection and our love for the brethren. The body of Christ. This is God's work and we are God's children. And that was God's expression through Paul of his affection because he knew that these saints were God's and he was one of the body of Christ. So we we understand the dynamics of the Christian faith and the Christian life in the believers in Philippi. But like Paul had, we are also partakers of God's grace as he expressed here. He continued to proclaim the gospel, which is exhibited in their lives and the growth of the church there. And Paul became an empirical example of what it is to love our brother. He's the physical example of how we can express that love. He he would sacrifice his life for these saints. And he would gladly be imprisoned and tortured for the cause of Christ. And he, he would lay down his life in service to our Lord, in service to the body of Christ. He could only do that because of the work that God had began in him. Paul was just a man. And yet God had done this mighty work in him because he was a faithful servant and he was the one that God had ordained at this time as an apostle to bring forth the gospel. And yet Paul didn't just take this and give credit to himself. He never points to himself. All the work that he was allowed to do as the Lord guided him, he never once brought back any attention to himself. He knew that it was God. And he wanted them to know that. And he kept pointing them back to the Lord who saved him. We'll stop here. And I just want to encourage you to think about the essence of what Paul was doing and saying here. I know that he's uh, he's inspired all of us in his writings. But as we look at this unique epistle, I hope that we can appropriate the understanding that God has for us in the love that Paul expressed in his love 
of the body of Christ. Father, we just give you thanks for all that you are doing in us and the work that you will complete. And we thank you, Father, that you gave your servant Paul to do this work, to pin these truths under your inspiration. We thank you, Father, for the privilege of collectively gathering to worship you with the saints. And we ask now that you would continue to guide and direct us to bring glory to your name as we spend time in song and worship and praise. And as the word is being proclaimed this morning, we just praise you and thank you and ask that you would be glorified through it. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.